All rise. What picture comes to mind when you think of a courtroom? For the Irish legal profession, one image stands out above all others, and it tells the story of one of the greatest court cases held in these islands. It is a painting, and it is housed in the King's Inn, Ireland's oldest legal education institution, founded in 1541 and located on Constitution Hill in Dublin. It is one of Ireland's most important paintings. Barrister John McGuigan showed it to me. Well, just look at this, Patricia. It's, it's a massive, epic painting. Uh, almost life-size figures in the Court of uh, Criminal Appeal at the Royal Courts of Justice. The painting is called High Treason, the appeal of Roger Casement. And it is by one of Ireland's greatest painters, Sir John Lavery. It is a vast canvas almost three metres wide by two metres high, and it depicts in great detail the courtroom scene on the 17th and 18th of July 1916, in which Roger Casement failed in his appeal against the death sentence. Wood panelling all around the walls of the court, the wooden gallery above, this magnificent chandelier of, of glass balls hanging over the court, the clock ticking in the background. You can just see the cases containing law books, probably the same law books, uh, are still in there today as they were in 1916. If you went into any court in Ireland or England today, it'd be exactly the same. Perhaps there'd be a few laptops on the desks and a few iPhones around, but there they all would be in their wigs and gowns, the scarlet robes in England, the black robes in Ireland. When you stand in front of this painting, you feel as if you are part of the courtroom, that you are witnessing firsthand this important trial. It is an insight into the legal world that has not changed much. I see it's not just a painting, it's a historical document of immense importance, political importance, legal importance social importance and for many years, many centuries into the future we'll tell the story of this great contest between the laws of England and the destiny of Ireland in which Roger Casement, sitting there in the dock behind the bars, the prison guards beside him played the central role. What this document can tell us the many political and legal insights that it holds, we will come back to later. This story is in two parts, the story of this one great painting and the story of how even today the visual records of a court in action are done by an artist. As McGuigan said, the scene Lavery painted a hundred years ago has not changed much. It is also the case that in Britain and in Ireland we still rely as we did in 1916, on an artist for the images of a court in action. One of the remarkable things about the painting is that it has been done at all because it is actually illegal to record images in court. The only reason we've got this canvas on this scale and this intimacy is because Judge Darling gave the artist the run of the jury box for the three days of the appeal. 
without the permission for the judge, this would be an illegal painting. We have a fascination with the legal world, the dramas of which play out nightly on our TV screens. Yet what we actually see of real court cases in action is tightly controlled in Ireland and in Britain, and for good reason. Mostly what the media show are images of the inside of empty courtrooms and external shots of courthouses. How the public view a court case has evolved over centuries. Jerry Kern is the media relations advisor for the court service. Well, I suppose courts are always interested in their relationship with the public and with the citizen. And over centuries, if not millennia, they do that in a different way. Like if you go back to the states in Athens, the Athenian states, maybe 2,000 years ago, the citizens all attended court. They had huge big squares. They had great weather. They'd servants and slaves to do their dinner in their gardens. So the citizen could go and maybe 2,000 of them be on a jury and the rest look on. And therefore, those who were responsible for democracy, those who decided who were their leaders, could see and were involved in the process of courts. So the only depiction you get from that period is art, because you, you didn't need a, a journal or a, a, a form of media to report what was happening in court, because those who mattered were there, in their thousands. And then in Ireland, I suppose in Brehan times, the courts travelled to where people lived. They were held outdoors, in openings or cops in forests. They uh, involved people. There was an oral tradition where people listened and recalled and retold those stories. So the decisions of the courts were very localised and very much remembered through storytelling. If you move on, I suppose, into the middle of the last uh, millennium to, we say, the creation and the invention of the printing press, for the first time you had the mass dissemination of ideas and of information. And that brings about a sense of democracy. So... The idea of what we see now as the nation-state was its three forms of government, the judiciary, the executive, the, the, the parliament, started to form around that time, as did the newspaper, as we know it, the local journal, the record of yesterday. And that mass dissemination of ideas, of decisions, grew along with the idea of courts as we know them today. So very quickly, the courts realised, in the new departure that is democracy, the courts were going to be dependent on the newspapers, on the media, to report and to depict what happened in court. So as that understanding and that acceptance from way back could be continued. Since then, there has been a troubled and wonderfully colourful relationship between the courts and the media that continues today. And they are very much interdependent. The images we see in the media are very tightly controlled as are the images of the accused. No, it's not about protecting their image. It's about not depicting them in a situation where they look guilty. So if you're being uh, taken in out of a van or a car in chains, uh, Mr Justice Hardiman, in a judgment of around the year 2000, uh, ruled that if you show that before the person's found guilty, it can give an impression of guilt, the chains, or an impression of danger, and can be the cause of an appeal. A visual record is permitted to be made only by the court artist, who can attend court cases and draw or paint the accused and the court scene. Elizabeth Cook is one of the United Kingdom's best-known court artists, and she continues on the tradition which has existed for centuries. Her drawings appear on BBC News, Sky and the Irish and British print media. I met Elizabeth in her studio in Exeter. They still invite the court, allow the court artist in to do, 
to do the drawings, which, as you say, has gone on for decades, hundreds of years, because the old illustrated London news used to carry black and white etched pictures of the trial of the week. Drawings of this sort of uh, are well-known. Important artists of their time would, would have a go at drawing in court in the old days when there was a particularly lurid murder. Elizabeth has been working as a court artist for over 25 years, a profession she came about by chance. But I went along to a trial locally um, as an adult with one of my daughters, I think, and I didn't know there was a law that says you must not draw in court. It's against the law, 1925 Criminal Justice Act. You can't draw in court, as you can't take photographs in court. I didn't know that. I was just somebody out of interest attending a local trial. And uh, I came out, having drawn a bit on my shopping list. The press were outside, and they said, what's going on? And I told them, and they said, what does he look like? Because we've never seen this guy. So I said, he looks like this, and opened up my shopping list with bread, eggs, and potatoes on it, and the face of the defendant. So that went in the paper that night. And I think ITV and BBC were there. And they said, we've got a trial down in Plymouth. Can you get there for us tomorrow? And off we went from there. That was a long time ago. (laughs) So I've travelled all over the country and sometimes into Europe and Ireland on different trials. Within the UK, particularly in England and Wales, there's a huge tradition of sketching. And there isn't one in Ireland, although it is done. I suppose the difference would be you don't see pictures of people in custody in the UK until very recently they didn't release mugshots like they do in the States. And never can I remember a scene where a camera was allowed to film somebody being brought in and out of court. They were always brought in in vans. So you see that picture on UK news of vans going down the street and people chasing them with cameras, hoping to get that one in a thousand shot of a picture through a window, which doesn't really happen. It is court artists like Elizabeth who can provide images of the accused in court to the media. And she has a particular way of doing this. It's formulaic in a way. Um, I know how long a drawing is going to take me. For instance, this drawing. Well, let's take this one. The case of um, where Nathan Matthews and his girlfriend were accused and tried for the murder of Becky Watts. Here is Nathan Matthews giving, giving evidence in court. So there's a judge in the background looking and there's a prosecution questioning him. And he's broken down. You can see he's holding his handkerchief, his head is bowed and his hand is to his face. I know that that's going to take me 20 minutes each, so that's an hour's drawing. And about 45 minutes into the drawing, I'll phone my television cameraman and say, I'll be outside in 10 minutes. So the cameraman will then film it and he'll make moves. So he'll go from the barrister, he'll move to the weeping defendant back to the judge, maybe. He might, he might focus on the piece of white paper that the barrister is holding there and end up with a close-up of the, the defendant weeping. Um, if it's with the paper, I will take that myself on my iPhone and send it straight away to the press agency that I work for, which is Press Association. And then they, they make sure that that goes out to all the press. In the UK, as I say, they have a tradition of it, but they do it differently. They take notes of what the person looks like I think their court rules were more specific, that there was to be no um, f- recording of what happened in court except the written word 
by journalists and lawyers. You see, Elizabeth is not actually permitted to draw in the courtroom. She can just take notes. She must then leave the court to draw. In court, she just sits with the journalists and observes. There's no way of knowing that I'm the artist. I'm sitting with the the press in the press box. I remember um, in 1995, Rosemary West, she was put on trial for murder. Do you remember her husband um, had murdered many, many young women and girls, but he killed himself while on remand, and so she went to trial. And she was brought up to the, the dock... She looked around and took it all in, because it must be overwhelming. And the next day, of course, her picture was in all the press, the picture that I'd drawn, and she must have thought, I, I didn't see anybody drawing. Nobody was sketching. So the next day, she took her place in the dock and stared around, looking for the person who could possibly be drawing. And she soon sussed me, because I wasn't drawing, but I was staring. So I was making written notes and staring at her, whereas all the journalists around me were all looking down, writing their notes. So she she stared back. I don't know what you'd do in a case like that, because it's it's not pleasant to stare at somebody and have them stare back, but I think, well, that's my job. I'm going to carry on staring, but I have to admit that I, I did look away first. Sketch artists, from my understanding, in the UK, they go in and they take notes of what the scene looks like, what the person looks like, It's very hard, you can imagine. I can probably do one or two without having to write any notes, but after that, I need to write notes. But I do it in a a certain way. Let's take, let's go for example. Um, I divide the face up. Let's take Rolf Harris as an example. Here he is. Here's Rolf Harris. I look at, uh, I divide, when I'm looking at a face or a head, I look at the top part. And that includes the hair. You can see, so he's grey and he's got a longish brow here. And the second would be perhaps the the nose and the mouth, which I call the muzzle, which is probably the most important part of the face. That's the part that we we recognise. And how long do you have looking at him? How long do you take to observe before you go out? If somebody is appearing for the first time at Magistrates Court, they're only there for a matter of minutes, under five to say their name and address. Do you remember the details of the cases or do you just remember the faces? When I'm in court, <laughs> there's something going on in my head that's quite different to a journalist. A journalist is listening. He's writing everything down, his hands flying across his notepaper, doing his shorthand. That's not the case with me. There's something, there's a monologue going on in my head and it drowns out everything. Because in my head it's being going, dark hair... Um, slightly long at the back, ears just covered, long sideburns ending in a thin beard running round the end of the chin. Um, that's the sort of thing that's going on in my head. And if I've got to draw several defendants, you can imagine that I can't possibly think of anything else or hear anything else. <laughs> when you've drawn them, the, the drawing that's been published, is that it? Do that, those images leave your head? No, I can always draw them. I could conjure up their faces... Yeah, I think it's indelible. There we go. Here's another one here. This is Mick Philpot. This case was very, very sad. There's another one with um, a dramatic moment. Here he is weeping. He was the guy who, with his wife, 
set fire to their house. They wanted a bigger house. The six children were in it. So here he is with his head in his hands and his tissue there. Absolutely broken, as you can see. And mainly, I'm, I'm there to tell the story. And if there's a dramatic moment like that, that's exactly what the journalist wants or the television wants. And that picture went into all the newspapers. And we do want to see these moments. They give us an insight into the human drama that unfolds in court. The media needs these images. So what you've had, I suppose, in terms of the media is the media, maybe 20% to 25% of newspaper coverage of news is court-related. So the media realise that their depiction of the most extreme forms in society, uh, the things that scare us, that cause us joy, uh, human failings, uh, human bravery and courage, the weakness of the human condition, the greed of some people, the power of the state, the power of big business, all tell great stories that sell newspapers. In Britain and in Ireland, the images that tell these stories are produced by artists with pencil and paper. This is a tradition that's been going for yes. decades. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at a painting that's 100 years old. Yeah. Why is it still important and why should they keep it rather than go to photography? They will go to photography. I have been expecting it for years. The judge, who used to, when I started, write with his fountain pen very slowly, and the barristers would have to make allowances for that. They would have to speak slowly, they'd have to watch his hand so that um, they would wait for him to stop writing that particular phrase or sentence, and then they'd carry on. So the whole thing was very slow. It's not anymore. The judge has his laptop there up in front of him. He's tapping away. There used to be stenographers. There are no stenographers. That finished in 2012. So now everything's recorded. It's all instant. The journalists can take their laptops in. Never could do that in the past. So times have changed. Technology has changed things. Somehow, it hasn't happened for me. However, in Ireland, it is unlikely that we are going to see our print media and TV screens flooded with images of the accused in court anytime soon. The Law Reform Commission, I think around 1990, recommended that there be some form of filming in Irish courts. That was soon dropped uh, because... The O.J. Simpson trial started then, uh, in, in the 90s. And it hasn't been moved on since. We allowed them to film at the start of a large trial, the judge walking onto the bench. And that gives them some pictures. And then they can do cutaways and close-ups and all sorts of uh, different shots in terms of the empty courtroom, the symbols of justice, we say, like the Bible or the Koran or the harp. Now, in terms of actually filming a court case, they've tried it in the UK several times. And it's fallen back several times. What they tend to do now is they allow their Supreme Court to be filmed and absolutely nobody watches it because it's quite staid and it's quite arcane points of law maybe. By the time you get to that level, there's no witnesses, there's no drama, there's no tears. In Scotland at the moment, and you saw it in the case where the man was being sentenced for the murder of an Irish woman, when he was being sentenced, the judge allowed her sentencing remarks be filmed. And that was quite powerful because she delivered it in a powerful way. Sentencing remarks, do they, they summarise what happened in the case. There's an inherent drama there. What I think you won't see for a long, long time, if ever, is the O.J. Simpson-style coverage or the Michael Jackson-style coverage, which they actually stopped in the end, and the Pistorius matter in South Africa. You won't see that here because the view largely held would be that the presence of cameras 
itself is a new dynamic in the courtroom. Like, it's hard enough to go and tell your version of the truth to people you don't know in a very public manner, in a very alien environment. But to add into that mix television and the drama that television does, two things can happen. One, it could intimidate you further, or secondly, you could grandstand for the cameras. And you see both when you see court cases being televised, particularly in the States. Lawyers grandstand, witnesses grandstand, the deliberate drama that comes along, overly dramatic, unnecessary tears. The court artist is very aware how their images of the accused could influence. There's somebody with just a very benign expression. But if I go like this, that's not quite so, so benign, is it? What I've done is I've made the eyebrows into an angry line coming down towards the middle and the mouth towns down a little bit. So I'd be careful that when I draw a picture, I don't do that by accident. We'll restore it to a normal benign expression, a normal... There we go. I have to be aware that uh, a jury is, is looking at my pictures. I don't want to um, influence anybody. It's very easy to make a face look, go from looking benign to looking sinister. It's just a matter of about four lines, little tiny lines. For that very good reason, caution must be taken in how the images of the accused are presented. But the media still needs a picture. In Ireland at the same time, until recently, people were walked in an hour court in handcuffs by the police, having been arrested. So the newspapers got their fill of the image. So they didn't need the shot. In the States, they would do both. You get a mug shot and you get the perp walk where someone had to walk through a gauntlet of observers on their way in and out whilst they were in custody. Now, the United Nations made it very clear from about 50 years ago that those people in custody being transported to and from prison, to court, we'd say, must be protected from undue public gaze. Our buildings weren't designed to accommodate that right. They, they were built in a different era. So the blanket and the coat was the protection we could offer them. 20 years ago, when we started to redesign courthouses, and 15 years ago, when we started to invest in them big time. So Ireland, uh, in redesigning its courthouses over the last 20 years, has ensured that those being brought into custody can't be seen. So now all of a sudden there's a gap in the media uh, coverage. They don't have a photograph. The guards and the prison service don't provide a mugshot. So the sketch artist um, has come into play in Ireland. Now, it's only in the very highest profile cases. Now, highest profile cases are decided by the media and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more they report, the more notorious the case becomes or even the person becomes, the more interest there is in it, the more views there are, the more people want to see. So the media will pay for sketch artists and it's not a cheap business, it's another salary for a day. And so it adds to your costs. But you do see it, um, and not just in the tabloids, over here, they'll bring in a sketch pad, they'll sit with the other journalists, and they will sketch. The rules of court in Ireland are silent on sketching. Um, there's never been an issue about it. It's done with great um, subtlety and discretion, um, and they never depict what they shouldn't. Mike O'Donnell is an Irish court artist, and I met him in the Criminal Courts of Justice in Dublin, which he covers. I love being here with the, the uh, 
the drama here is, and the stakes here are so are so so higher, you know. The, the the really sad bad cases are here, you know. But it's for me, it's kind of uh, I have subjects, and they're of and people want to see these people, you know. They don't see them on television, and they don't see they don't have access to them. So I'm I'm conscious of when I do them that through my work and my hand in particular that people have some and they develop their own because they have a need to see you know and it's important that people you know who have done or have been convicted you know face they face a public trial but they have to face people as well you know they're they're destined to face the jury here who are their peers you know where they sit but when it's when when i'm sitting there and they arrive out the temptation is to draw them immediately, but they have to. They have. They need time to kind of settle. You know, these they they are facing the jury there across the way, and they're um, they they need that time to settle. And then the, suddenly, uh, maybe after maybe two or three minutes, when proceedings get underway and people are they adopt a particular pose, and that's that, then you go. Well, the, the court, the courts are open to the public, but of course, not everybody can attend. It would be impossible, and the story is. Um, broadcast on the screen or it's by television news or it's broadcast in the papers and a, a picture tells a story now within that you have a long history of artists um, attending court in terms of as i said in the athenian times 2000 years ago it would be for adornment purposes they'd be made the lavery um picture and scene from caseman's appeal um, wouldn't be typical of sketching or journalism, but a, a, a wonderful snapshot of how society looked at the time. But this painting, as John McGuigan will tell you, is, is captures the the appeal of uh, Roger Casement in the royal courts in London. This it has all the characters, and I remember seeing it and feeling really impressed, you know, by this. So I wrote a poem then. The scene was set at the royal courts that morning, preparations meticulous, the courtroom unadorned. Multitudes had tickets booked for the trial, more were disappointed as seats were denied. Despite searchlights at the ambassador, razzle-dazzle at the Theatre Royal, or the Maharani at the Colosseum, none drew the crowds as did King versus Casement. Bonnets and feathers, toppers and tails, all gathered to witness Caseman's fate. Lawyers, witnesses, bobbies, administrators, wardens, court artists, common speculators were joined by frantic reporters who travelled from the world over. High treason is the painting of that scene. A hundred years ago, Lavery sat in the jury box with his pencil and paints to witness King versus Casement. Lavery went through the same process with the same aim as Elizabeth and Mike now have to capture a moment when a person's fate rests with the law. As part of the 1916 centenary commemorations, the painting has been moved from its home in the King's Inn and given on temporary loan to the Dublin City Gallery, Hugh Lane. I met Jessica O'Donnell, collections curator there. So um, in this uh, larger room here of the exhibition, we have... John Lavery's monumental painting of the last day of uh, Casement's appeal. What's lovely about this painting as well is it's incredibly painterly. Um, it's not a dry courtroom scene. 
Um, it has all the characteristics that Lavery was, was famous for. Beautiful colours, beautiful brush strokes and incredible likenesses. There's a lovely dynamic in, in the painting. This monumental painting is one of the most important of all images we have of inside a courtroom. Lavery was not a court artist. He was known as a portrait painter and it was because of this that he was invited into the court by the judge. What resulted is the painting that witnesses the appeal of Casement, Barrister John McGuigan. Lavery is sitting in the jury box. We view this picture from the jury box and if you were to go to this court today, it still exists absolutely unchanged in the Royal Courts of Justice and sat in the jury box, as I have done on a number of occasions, and look at this view, nothing has changed. The clock still ticks on the wall. Mr Justice Donal O'Donnell, Judge of the Supreme Court. I think it's um, a fantastic portrayal of a very historical trial and it operates on a number of levels, both as a historical record and also as a really great painting and captures some of the drama of the proceedings. Roger Casement, as I said, he exerts an enormous influence um, and interest for historians um, for all that he achieved throughout his life. So it's a very interesting period historically and there's an awful lot written about Casement. So it's wonderful to have a visual account of this period and it's a contemporaneous account as well. Lavery was there making the sketches and it's a sympathetic portrayal of Casement. High Treason is central stage in the exhibition that explores the role of artists as witness in society. I met with Barbara Dawson, director of the Hugh Lane. Well, our whole programme this year is Artist as Witness. And the artist is not an adjunct to society. The artist is part of society. He witnesses society and is as important as the philosopher, the poet, indeed, in some ways, the journalist. And so what we're looking at is how the artist is, um, captures the, the society they're in. And Lavery captured it in this huge painting. Declan Long, art critic and lecturer. And this, this is interesting uh, as a way of thinking about how art might uh, approach the idea of witnessing somewhat differently than documentary. It might be that what art sometimes does is looks carefully at the, the conditions or the wider circumstances under which uh, you know, a situation like a trial might happen. But that's another important thing to remember about this painting. This is July 1916. Over in France, hundreds, thousands of people are being killed in the trenches, including many Irishmen. This judge, at the end of the bench, had already lost his son. This is a great state occasion, probably the most important state trial of the 20th century. A night of the realm in the dock, sensational high treason case, but it was a painting that he was doing for the presiding judge, Darling. It was a painting he was doing for the glory of the English law. It was not being done for the glory of Roger Casement, although that is what it has ended up as. It's ironic, isn't it? It was designed in vanity as a, a, as a painting to celebrate in the glories of the English law, and it's become a painting to celebrate the martyrdom of Sir Roger Casement, who was quite prepared to die for the things that he was doing for Ireland. Uh, it tells a lot of stories, um, part of the drama of the law, 
but also the ego, because you see people who thought that they were going to be the centrepiece, uh, the bravery of some of the lawyers, because Sergeant Sullivan and Gavin Duffy both um, took the case when they didn't have to and when others had refused. Gavin Duffy was uh, an English solicitor working in London. He had a very cut-glass accent, and... uh, he wasn't particularly involved in Irish affairs, although he came from a family deep in nationalism. Um, and he was asked to take on uh, Roger Casement's client, and his partners told him that if you uh, want to represent an Irish traitor, I'm afraid you can't continue to be a partner in this firm. To his eternal glory, he decided to take Casement on to his eternal glory as a lawyer and as an Irishman. He chose his client. It has history, knowledge, drama, a bit of pomp and ceremony, a bit of excitement. As you can see from it, it continually um, captivates audiences as to the composition because when you stand in front of it, you almost feel that you're in the courtroom. But the painter has clearly made the central feature of the painting to which all eyes are eventually drawn, casements sitting in the dock. Because he's centre stage, but he's very small compared to the judges on the left, which are resplendent in their red robes and their wigs, which is amazing. So they're there in all their glory, and he gives them, Lavery very cleverly gives them their dignity and their authority, height of the bench that they're at, looking over the court. And yet he very cleverly manages to make the accused the one that's allegedly committed treason, the centre stage and the martyr. This is very, very interesting commentary by an artist. It's kind of got a whip to it. He's got a certain criticism to it. And yet, when you look at it, you can't quite see that initially. Yes, I mean, it's fascinating because it's so clearly in sympathy with Casement. And that was obviously not what Darling had in mind when he invited Lavery or, our, or commissioned him, as the case may be. Um, and it's, it's, it's almost as if that happened during the trial. Um, Sir John Lavery went on to paint everybody involved in the treaty negotiations and their house was a sort of uh, informal headquarters for the Irish delegation and he became seemed to have been very sympathetic to the Irish cause but but there had been no I think prior evidence of that so it's almost as if this happened during the painting um, as a result of his experience of attending the trial which makes it more interesting because it's not simply a historical record of a uh, of a dramatic event I, I don't know whether he would have been aware of the uh, that that was an unpopular decision certainly there were contemporaneous comments in some Sort of semi-tabloid newspapers, uh, and I don't think I don't think it affected him, but it's it just adds to the the legend of the painting. Um, the thing that's that's witnessed here in some ways is the convergence of the different aspects of Casement. You know, the story of him being, you know, someone important to to Britain at a certain moment, Sir Roger Casement, you know, the reporting on uh, abuses in the Congo and so on, somebody who's important to Irish nationalism, somebody who also um, was controversial because of the so-called Black Diaries that, you know, make him important then um, in the history of 
the Irish state's relationship and the British state's relationship to homosexuality. The, the, the witnessing in some ways that takes place here is a way of looking back at history and picking up on multiple strains that may not have been um, dealt with in their time the way they could be dealt with now. Whereas we were looking at Roger Casement, who stopped the appalling atrocities by Leopold II in the Congo, where he cut the hands off uh, people and threw them into baskets. And also Roger Casement blew the whistle on the appalling atrocities against the Putumayans in Brazil. Um, Of course, the rubber trade was in full swing, and there was a huge demand for rubber, and people were destroyed, burnt, tortured in the pursuit of gaining control of the markets. And he was knighted for his humanitarian works and is recognised as the first great humanitarian, European humanitarian. And I think that's terribly important to recognise. You must remember that Casement was such an important international figure. He had an international network of contacts, political, scientific anti-slavery, literary, artistic, religious, all of those could have been organised to sign petitions for his clemency to prevent him from being hung. But the British had the diaries. They had the Black Diaries, as they are known, which record Casement's homosexual activities in many different parts of the world. And they used these diaries to persuade people not to sign petitions for his clemency. This was nothing to do with the trial. This was a political act after the trial. Who who released the diaries and how were they released? The British cabinet certainly authorised the release of the diaries, but it was the British Secret Service that did the physical circulation. They ensured that they were brought to the attention of, for example, the Archbishop of Canterbury and many other bishops uh, to the American government because there was a huge support in the Irish community in America for clemency. Uh, They brought them to the attention of newspaper editors and there was a a quite vicious, nasty, unpleasant campaign to prevent the uh, petitions for clemency being organised. And as a result, he was hung and this picture became an embarrassment. What the British did was unforgivable. It wasn't the law that did it, It was the politicians and the Secret Service. But it reflected very badly upon this trial. And you could not now hang this picture in a public place in England as a celebration of the English law. It became a bit of an embarrassment. Also, it's a huge painting, which you could look on now as being somewhat subversive in the sense that Lavery was, of course, establishment figure. He had painted uh, the royal family. He was a friend of Asquith's and Winston Churchill. But in this work, which he continued to paint after Casement had been hanged, um, he, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, in some ways, this can't be pushed behind the door or, you know, put up in an attic. It's an enormous painting, so it has to go somewhere. Lavery was left with the painting on his hands, and Darling never took it up. What is interesting is that under the Lavery bequest, it was to go, I think, to the National Portrait Gallery and in default to the Courts of Justice in in London. And the National Portrait Gallery turned it down. Um, And when it went to to the Courts of Justice, the then Chief Justice was a man called Lord Goddard, who was famously... um, difficult judge who was uh, very had very strong opinions and certainly had no reputation as an art connoisseur but he 
in a sense, immediately recognised where the sympathies of the painting lay, and he thought it was a, a terrible thing that somebody who had been uh, convicted of treason should be memorialised in a painting that was to be hung in the courts, and that's why it ended up in the office of the Registrar of uh, Court of Criminal Appeal. So even Lord Goddard could see what the painting was trying to say or the picture that Lavery was trying to present. And the painting was then gifted by will to the Royal Courts of Justice in London, where it hung in a basement room for many years. Nobody visited it, nobody knew about it. People forgot what it was about until, in the 1950s, Sergeant Sullivan, who we see here standing, addressing the court, who was Casement's counsel, he came back from London and was made an honorary bencher of the King's Inns here. And he was aware of the the sort of uh, tangled history of the painting and the fact that it was hanging in in a room in the Royal Courts of Justice and he suggested that it would be nice uh, if the King's Inns could buy it uh, and he wrote to his friend the Lord Chancellor who happened to be the Lord Chancellor and said uh, made that suggestion and uh, they wouldn't sell it to him uh, but there was a very interesting exchange of correspondence between the Lord Chancellor of England and the Lord Chief Justice of England I'll read, it, I'll read it, an extract of it for you I may say that it's an an enormous picture. Two courses suggest themselves to me. One, to adopt your suggestion of lending it to the King's Inns on indefinite loan, which means that we can forget to ask for it back. And so far, they haven't asked for it back. That's how it came to the King's Inns happy chance in what's otherwise a fairly unhappy uh, story. But I suppose um, one of the things about this painting, as a painting, which is interesting to me, is the sense that we get a document in a way, you know, done through the kind of measured slow process of painting, which is a document in that sense then of, uh, of historical facts. But the thing that strikes you, and would strike anyone in looking at something like this, is that it's a great dramatic theatre. And um, what Lavery has done well with Roger Casement right in the centre of this, with the assembled crowd, with the judges and lawyers and so on, is give a sense of the, the sort of aesthetic, elaborate context within which this all happens. But right in this picture we have theatre, and that's an interesting, I think, um, aspect of this as document. There still is a bench... There still are judges wearing robes and I suppose there's a balance between formality and informality and sometimes I think it's necessary to to set a scene because you forget that this is, the, as I say, the one time somebody will get to say what has to be said on behalf of Roger Casement on the one hand, that these are not casual things, they're very uh, important and they're important that people pay full attention to it and it reinforces the solemnity of the occasion, but also that uh, partly the tradition that this is this sort of important task has been done by people through generations. So, I would like to think that what links what we do today with what was done there was an understanding of the seriousness of the job, rather than 
a love of pomp or ceremony for its own sake. I'd like to think it's a sort of perform, still performs a function. Generations of court artists have provided us with a view into the workings of this legal world. The artist John Lavery has witnessed one of the most important trials in history and has left us with a document that gives us a unique and intimate insight into that case. Lavery follows the role of artist as witness to society. His work holds for us layers of stories. His painting is also part of another story. The story of how the scenes inside of our courtrooms continue to be seen through the filter of the court artist. It's a, it's a lawyer's pictures. It knows about wigs and precedents. It belongs here. It belongs to us lawyers. It is the most wonderful legal painting in the world and is, for us in Ireland, a historical document of unparalleled importance. Law Lines is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Narration by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Context Studio.